Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Sorry to wake you up to do this. No, it's fine. All right. So what do you think the stock market is? That's my son, Walker. He's 11. Roughly the same age that I was when my father sat me down for the talk. My father never did actually explain how sex worked. I think he thought a person just naturally figured that out. Money was different. Money was something that needed explaining. I think the stock market is, uh, from the way I look at it, it, at school when I board, I can just open up the stock market app it tells me how much a business is growing and making money. And another thing you can do with the stock market is you can invest money in it. So if the stock market grows, then your money will grow with it. Very true. Both excellent. But how do you open up the stock market app at school if you don't have a phone? It's an iPad. It's an on the iPad Pro they give us. At school? Yeah, there's, there's this little thing on the iPad that says stocks and I pressed <laughs> on it. And now I, and then I just typed some random, I just typed fart on it and fart talks came up. So I have that on my front page now. Fart talks? Yeah, fart talks. Is that a company? Yep. It's called fart, fart, how do you spell it? F-A-R-T-O-X. Fart talks. What does it do? Let's just check this. (laughs) It's really funny. Hold on one sec. Yeah, and it's been growing. But it has no recent story. It looks. Oh, you know what? It's it's not an actual company. It's a complicated. It's a complicated stock. Back to the talk. We're at the desk in my office. I've pulled up the Charles Schwab stock trading page. Now my father just handed me a little black ledger. He said it was for me to record my stock market holdings. He'd bought me ten shares of a restaurant company called Chart House because they own Burger King, and I knew what Burger King was. Tell me a company that you like or a company whose products you really like. Here. Um, just a company. Any company. Like, do you like Apple? Do you like... Oh, um, yeah. Apple. Apple's my favorite. If you own a piece of Apple, uh, you, you know, you might like to own it for a while, but if it goes up, you might want to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you think you go to sell it? You kind of need a place where everybody who would want to buy shares in Apple or any other company can meet up with anybody who wants to sell the shares in Apple or any other company, right? So it'd be, it'd be great if it was just one place. Um, and it used to be just one place, the New York Stock Exchange. That's, that's what the that's a stock exchange is where buyers and sellers come together to trade shares. But what if the buyers can't afford to fly all the way to? Well, that's a very good point. They then they used to do is they'd make a phone call or even before that they'd send a telegram <laughs> or even by mail say I want to do this and there'd be someone there for them. And and that that's called uh, a stockbroker. It's a really good question because you don't want to who wants to have to fly all the way to New York if you want to sell or buy your shares or buy shares. Um, but now there are no people at the exchange. Now it's just computers. Now it's just computers. And like all the orders are going into computers. Because you can't persuade a computer. You can't persuade a computer? Or you can't cheat a computer. Well, that's interesting. How do you, what do you mean? Well, I mean, unless you can hack into it, it's pretty hard to cheat your way into getting a stock without paying anything. It's 
funny that his mind instantly went there. Mine had two when I was his age. I'd looked inside the little black ledger, studied my 10 shares of chart house worth roughly 200 bucks, this unimaginably huge sum. And I noticed a line item, 20 bucks, broker's commission. What's a broker's commission, I asked my dad. He explained, a guy charged 20 bucks just to pick up the phone and tell someone to buy the stock. What's this guy's name, I asked. I still remember this feeling of outrage, the sheer unfairness of it all. 20 bucks for a phone call. My dad told me the stockbroker's name. Then I asked where the stockbroker lived, and my father told me that too. The guy lived in a great big house, a few blocks away from us. Then a wary look crossed my dad's face. Why do you want to know where he lives, he asked. Because I'm going to go egg his house, I said. Because that's just what you did to grown-ups who behave badly. You egg their houses. Which is to say that when I first learned how the people inside the stock market got themselves paid, I was genuinely pissed off. I'm Michael Lewis, and this is Against the Rules, a show about the attack on the authority of the referee in American life and what that's doing to our idea of fairness. And we're now at the end of our season, the final episode, in which we try to answer the question, why on earth would anyone ever want to be a referee? Do you want to get in the front of the back? You care? Yeah, back's, back's good. Is where Bono lives? Yeah. Donkey? Yeah. I'm in a car outside of Dublin, in the village of Dalky. God, it's gloomy. Ah, oh, jeez. I know it's going to be okay tomorrow. Thank you for coming and getting us. Man. God, God. I'm with Eamon Ryan. He'd spent his career in the 1970s and 80s as a civil servant. His job was to encourage foreigners to invest in Ireland, which back then seemed a hopeless task. In 1990, the Irish government had moved him and his family to the United States, to Greenwich, Connecticut. They were transported to what was and is ground zero for America's money culture our bond traders and investment bankers and hedge fund managers. Did, uh, did you all enjoy living in the States, or was it a... Yeah, the first couple of months were difficult. What, did you, what, what made it difficult? Um, there was, the, the people at Greenwich were a bit snooty. Yeah. yeah. A bit snooty, he says, and, in case you didn't hear it. Well, they are. Yeah. They're known, there's, yeah, I guess there are places in the States where you could have found snootier people, but not many. Well, they think they're Fark and Chanel number five. Yeah. 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 And sometimes they are. Yeah. When the Ryans moved from Ireland, they had no heirs about anything except maybe the fact that they had no heirs. Ireland was still a poor country. The Ryans weren't fancy and didn't really care to be. They weren't inclined to look down on other people or look up to them and were suspicious of anyone who did either. In other words... They were Irish. There he is in his Ireland jersey. What did he play? Soccer? Yeah. Football. Soccer, yeah. His brother is there on the other side. That's his sister. That's his sister. That's his brother there. That's Owen. Gotcha. They remained in America four years. They sent their 16-year-old son, Ronan, to Greenwich High School and then on to Fairfield University, where Ronan developed a secret love for a kind of person his parents never fully understood, the American money person. Take me back to the first encounter you ever have with the U.S. stock market. Years ago, my junior year in college, they gave us tours of the New York Stock Exchange floor. This was in 1995. That's Ronan. There was literally thousands of people pushing and shoving. And at the end of the day, when I'm leaving the office at five, these guys had walked out an hour before. It was flashy cars. They were wearing their jackets in the bars. They were kind of like the cool kids post-college. So I, I, just saw, I just thought it was interesting. Actually, more than interesting. Ronan wanted to be one of them, one of those people on the lucky side of America. He had no connections and no money and no real reason to think Wall Street was waiting for him. And really, he wasn't much like the Wall Street traders. They were big, and he was slight. They projected confidence, and he projected doubt. Yet he insisted that Wall Street was where he was going. To himself, that is. He didn't dare whisper any of this to his parents or his friends. It would have sounded phony. He knew what his parents would say. Going to Wall Street? Why? Have you started farting Chanel number five? 
As Ronan approached college graduation, his interest in being a stock market trader became an obsession. He wrote dozens of letters to every Wall Street firm, even the small ones. He received only one reply, a form letter. So I graduated in June. Uh, My parents had already moved back to Ireland. I was living with my friend's mother on the floor of her apartment looking for a job, and it wasn't going swimmingly well. And then I got a call one day from a guy from MCI. MCI was a phone company. He went to work for the phone company, and not for the glamorous part of it. And it started off as something called a national account support consultant, and they shipped me off to Atlanta for a couple of weeks and started training me on fiber optic cables and the difference between glass and copper and network switches and voice and data. And I was doing pagers on people's belts. I was doing voice. You know, I was working with travel agents. You know, I would go up to some offices in the Bronx where... They literally had phone booths for people who wanted to call home to Colombia or El Salvador and couldn't afford to. A few years later, Ronan moved from the phone company to another company called Radians. Radians was in sort of the same business as MCI. It helped people to move their data around. Only Radians was helping people who worked with Wall Street traders. Traders who wanted to speed up their trades in various stock markets. In the early 2000s, all the stock markets the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and the others, had up and moved out of New York City to New Jersey, where floor space was cheaper. They'd also gotten rid of all the human beings who worked on their trading floors, the guys Ronan had once found so cool. The stock markets were now simply stacks of computers inside New Jersey data centers. The old New York Stock Exchange basically became nothing more than a stage set for CNBC. One day at Radian's, Ronan got a strange call from a trader in Kansas City. The guy wanted Ronan to figure out why his stock market orders were taking so long to reach the stock exchanges in New Jersey. And it's taking him 43 milliseconds round trip for these trades to to be acknowledged. And I remember my inner monologue at the time is, I don't even know what the hell a millisecond is, but I said, Ted, that sounds terrible. I think I can help you. A millisecond is one thousandth of a second. It takes roughly 400 milliseconds to blink your eye, if you do it fast. Ronan knew that the guy's biggest problem was that he was in Kansas City. Data travels at the speed of light, but it still travels. The further you are from the stock exchanges, the longer it takes for your trades to get to them. So Ronan moved the guy's trading machines into a building in New Jersey near the stock exchanges and dropped his trading time from 43 milliseconds to 3.9 milliseconds or roughly one-hundredth of the time it takes you to blink your eye, if you do it fast. And this guy came up to visit his computers, I guess, a few weeks later, and he was thrilled. And, you know, according to what he told me, I I was trying to ask him, I'm like, what's the value of a millisecond? I'm very pleased that you as my client are happy. I just have no idea why you are. And his explanation was in the first, I believe he said the first four or five days of trading out in New Jersey, same strategy that I was running in Kansas, I've made more additional profit to pay for your services for 18 months. Anyway, word soon got out across Wall Street that if you wanted to make your trades go faster, you called Ronan Ryan. And Ronan was soon helping all these high-frequency traders, as they were called. Ronan had no idea how they were making their money, but they would use these mysterious terms like sniffing out the whale order. And they'd be like, yeah, you know, we can see footprints of large orders entering the market and we can, you know, basically if we see there's demand of a stock because a big pension firm or mutual fund is trying to buy it, we can buy it ahead of them and sell it back to them for more. Ronan was running these super straight fiber optic lines across New Jersey. He was scoping out the data centers that housed the exchanges to find the shortest paths from the traders' computers to the stock exchange computers. The stock exchanges didn't really understand what was going on at least at first. But then high-frequency traders started to offer the stock exchanges huge sums of money for what seemed like absurdly small things, like a shorter cable between the traders' computers and the stock exchanges' computers. And they all insisted on having their computers inside the same buildings in New Jersey. Co-location, they called it. The stock exchanges became a peculiar kind of landlord, just the amount that they charge these co-located clients to connect them. You, you pay to get into the building, and then to get from your spot in the building to the exchange's meet-me point is bananas. Like, they'll charge as much as $40,000 a month for a cable. 
$40,000 a month for a cable that you could buy retail for 200 bucks. Ronan had no clear idea why these big shots were throwing so much money around inside these New Jersey data centers, but then neither did the data centers. The American part of him just sort of went along for the ride. Whatever these people were doing must be cool and great. Just another wonderful aspect of American capitalism. The Irish part of him began to wonder if that was true. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at T-Mobile.com slash Unconventional Awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. And what is IAX Group? IAX uh, Group is a... Um, <laughs> IAX is a stock exchange. Um, All people have things that set them apart. What set Brad Katsuyama apart was his refusal to be set apart. Ever since he was a little kid in the Toronto suburbs, people had been telling him that he was special, and he'd been refusing to take them too seriously. When he was seven, his mom told him he'd been identified as gifted and offered a spot at a special school. Brad said he'd rather stay in the normal school with his friends. When he was 15, he ran a 40-yard dash in four and a half seconds, and the track coach told him he could be a star. He said he'd rather stay on the football team with his friends. At 17, he could have gone to any university in the world. He chose to go to Wilfrid Laurier, west of Toronto, to stay with his friends. Brad never thought much about what he would do for a living, but the Royal Bank of Canada found him and hired him and naturally told him he was going to be a star. 
Brad had never set foot in the United States, but right after 9-11, RBC sent him to Wall Street to run their stock trading. He was 23 years old. And so when the 2008 financial crisis happened, Brad Katsuyama was making $2 million a year running U.S. stock market trading for the Royal Bank of Canada. But by then, at least to him, something was feeling very wrong. The trouble started with the computer he used to trade in the stock market. Up until early 2008, the screens on his trading desk had always given him real-time pictures of the market. If he wanted to buy, say, Hewlett-Packard stock, he'd check his computer screens to see how much of it was offered. If they said 10,000 shares were offered for sale at a certain price, Brad could hit a button and buy all 10,000 shares at that price. Then one day, he couldn't. Basically, my just the computer says, okay, well, you didn't buy 10,000, you bought 8,000. And so um, it was bothersome, but you, you, you kind of tend to rewire your brain to realize that trading's computerized. It's a fast-moving market. Things are happening. Maybe someone else wanted to buy Hewlett-Packard at the same time I wanted to buy it. The, the issue is that by 2008, the problem got worse. Instead of buying 80% of what I saw, I'd get 60%. By 2009, instead of buying, getting 60, I'd get 40% of what I saw. So I was missing entire chunks of stock. Millions of dollars worth of stock of essentially just disappearing. Brad isn't buying and selling stock just for himself or for the Royal Bank of Canada. Mainly, he's acting on behalf of big American and Canadian pension funds and mutual funds and the ordinary people whose money they managed. His losses are also their losses. And he can't figure out why they're mounting. His first thought was it was a computer problem. Maybe the buttons on his keyboard didn't work or something the Royal Bank of Canada's geek squad turned up at his desk and told him the computer buttons work fine. It was Brad who was the problem, they said. He wasn't pressing the button fast enough. And I'd count to five or seven or ten, whatever. Nothing would happen. Then I'd press the button, and then I'd miss shares, and the stock would trade higher. So it was very clear that it wasn't someone else wanted to buy Hewlett-Packard because I wanted to buy it, and something between me pressing the button and my trade actually executing Something was happening, but I could never get a real answer as to what was happening. Brad figured out that whatever was happening had to do with the way information had started to travel. By 2009, the stock exchanges were in some weird relationship with these new traders, these so-called high-frequency traders. What Brad hadn't completely worked out was exactly what enabled these guys to know what he was doing before he even did it. But then he heard about this person who helped make high-speed traders go faster, an Irish guy named Ronan Ryan. Like, people hear, oh, the exchanges are in New Jersey. If you don't live in New Jersey, I live in New Jersey. I happen to know where Mawa is. I know where Secaucus is. You live in New York. Brad lived in New York. He had no clue where these places were. And these are things that were fairly rudimentary to me, not because I'm smarter than anybody on Wall Street. It's just this is the industry that I grew up with. Ronan explained to Brad what happened when he pushed the button to trade, that instantaneous was not instantaneous. The signal Brad sent to buy 10,000 shares of Hewlett-Packard needed to travel from his desk at One Liberty Plaza in lower Manhattan out to the data centers scattered across the Jersey suburbs, to the new stock markets full of server racks trading stocks. So one press of the button, what I thought was an instantaneous action was actually a series of action that happened over the course of many milliseconds. High-speed traders were able to buy technology and data from the exchanges to pick up a signal at one exchange and race me while my order is in flight to the other exchanges to do one of two things. One, they wanted to cancel any sell orders they had out there because here comes a big buyer. I don't want to sell anymore because I know there's a buyer coming. But two, to actually buy stock ahead of me to sell back to me at a higher price. It's called front-running. It's not really about being an investor yourself. It's about finding out what real investors are about to buy and buying it before they do, so you can sell it to them for a higher price. You're only buying because you know I want to buy. Um, and you're buying not to own shares in a company that you think is going to help you know, uh, you know, develop uh, you know, an investment return because you understand their business model. No, you're buying it just to flip it back to me because you know I want to buy it. So Brad figures all this out with a lot of help from Ronan, after which Brad takes a long look at this guy, 
this oddly wary Irishman. Ronan still longed to be a big-shot Wall Street stock market trader, and Brad decided to make him one. Inside of a year, Ronan was earning more than a million bucks. Brad builds this team of people inside the Royal Bank of Canada. The team consists mostly of immigrants who are running tests on the American stock market to see how to unrig it, to see if they can make it impossible for their own stock market orders to be front-run. So they try this. Instead of sending one signal to the four New Jersey centers, they send four different signals. So they all arrive at the four different centers at precisely the same moment. Each signal was in order to buy however many Hewlett-Packard or whatever shares were for sale in just that data center. And just like that, the whole problem vanished, at least for RBC. Brad was once again able to buy all the shares for sale on his trading screen without being scalped, without electronic frontrunners in the middle of his trade. But the problem still bothered Brad because it was so obviously, outrageously unfair. The U.S. government had granted licenses to these stock exchanges on the condition that they referee the stock market. Winners and losers are no longer determined solely based on who understands the company better and fundamentals. It's now based on how how long my cable is and uh, do I use microwave versus fiber optic cable. We've talked about this sort of thing before in this podcast. It happened with CEO pay consultants and the ratings agencies and art connoisseurs and probably all kinds of other referees. The ref got bought. In this case, the refs are the stock exchanges. They were now providing a slow picture of the stock market to ordinary investors while selling a faster picture of that same market to a select group of high-speed traders. That that is like finding out the umpire makes more from selling things to one of the teams than they do from umpiring the game. One thing a lot of people don't realize is that right now, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ they make more money selling high-speed data and technology than they do from matching buyers and sellers. Back in 2015, I wrote a book called Flash Boys about Brad and Ronan and the problem of high-frequency trading because I was as outraged as I had been as a kid when my father tried to explain to me that some stockbroker had charged 20 bucks to make a phone call and I wanted to egg his house. And I assumed that any right-thinking person would share my outrage. This is what's weird. The computers aren't in one place anymore. They're, they're all in New Jersey, right outside of New York City. But they're in like four or five different places in New Jersey. So you see what it says? A-A-P-L-S no, yeah, Apple. I know what Apple sign is. It's called their ticker. And we say buy. Let's say we want to buy one share. You want to buy, let's buy 10 shares. Oh, okay. All right. Isn't that a lot? You're right with that? Yeah. Um, this is going to help me get into college? It's going to help. It's going to pay my college? It could if it goes up a lot. You want to click it? You can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sit mm-hmm. in my chair. So what you do is you go. Place order. Place order. That's it. Place order. So what does it say? It says, right now it says your estimated total amount is. $1,509.55. And you go down there. Place order. Do it? Yep. So you're not allowed to buy in the night? It's closed at night. Oh. So people can have breaks. People have so people can have breaks. And the computers, I would bet. And the computers need a break too? They probably do. Now I hit him with it. Right between the eyes. The brutal facts of life. I explained that when he bought his first Apple shares. These other computers get to see what he's doing before anyone else. Like there are people out there who get to live in the future, milliseconds ahead of us. This is the funny thing about the stock market I'm trying to explain to you is that you think about, you understand why stocks exist. You understand why people would want to buy them and sell them. Uh, But it's harder to understand why anybody needs to sit in the middle between the people who would buy and sell and be given different information from everybody else, better information, so they can make money off the people who want to buy and sell. The reason all this happens is it happens so fast that nobody sees it. These signals move at the speed of light, which is 
You know. The second fastest thing. What's the first fastest thing? Thought. Thought. That threw me for a second. I mean, is it true? Do thoughts move faster than light? Did I just prove that they don't? I honestly don't know, or if it matters. But then I realized he didn't pick up on what I was trying to tell him. Let's see what we got it for. We got it for $150.45. Actually, it's even smaller. See, $150.45.4. That's what we paid for the stock. Someone's computer in the, one of the exchanges in New Jersey was looking at it and seeing that Apple was below that. And ah, I'll, I can buy it cheaper and sell it to that kid in Berkeley, California and steal a few pennies from him. <laughs> it's not illegal for kids to buy stock, but their parents have to do it for them. That's correct. <laughs> so. so we didn't break the law. Technically, I clicked the button, so. What we'll never do is buy stock drunk. Yeah. It's illegal for kids to buy stock drunk. <laughs> uh, so never, never trade stocks while drinking. Even an 11-year-old senses that with all this money flying around, there must be laws involved here. And there are. He's required by law to send his order to a stock exchange through a stockbroker. And that stockbroker gets paid by the exchanges for those orders. So the stockbroker is in on the game, too. The game is to maximize the kill of the high-speed traders so that they can afford to pay the stock exchanges and the stock exchanges can in turn pay the stockbrokers. Everyone in the middle takes a bite out of the prey. The prey is us. And it's all legal because the people who make the laws screwed up and they're only now beginning to admit it. the parent company that owns the New York Stock Exchange, is among the few most profitable companies in the United States, Um, which is astonishing if you think about it because their business is simply the exchange of financial instruments rather than the creation of anything real. That's Robert Jackson, who in 2017 was named one of the five commissioners at the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's supposed to oversee the stock exchanges. Think of it as the referee's referee. I totally understand why a car manufacturer might be, or why an incredibly innovative internet company might be. But the idea that the place you go to make investments is the most profitable business in America tells me that something's wrong. Can you think of any analogy to the situation where you've got the companies that are responsible for both providing this public good, this public service, or this public information, and and are also competing with it in the private sector? I can't. And that just shows how backward our system for stock markets are. I can think of lots of examples in the American economy and in our history where we've had a publicly provided good and a privately provided good. And sometimes the two even compete with each other. What would be an example of that? So uh, there's public transportation that's available on the subway and then there's privately available substitutes. But this is a little like letting Uber run the subway and being surprised that the subway sucks. Yeah. Or like having Barnes & Noble run the library. That's right. And then it's acting surprised when you get to the library and you realize it doesn't have that many books. Let's talk just a little bit about what it says about fairness in the American economy that this has been allowed to happen. Do you worry about that subject at all? Here's what I worry about. That if we stop somebody on the street and said, hey, here's what happens when you buy and sell a share of stock. It's not that... Uh, It goes to some central place where people figure out what the price should be and then give you the the best price possible. No, no, no. This order bounces around data centers in northern New Jersey and then is routed to one of 12 exchanges where the guy who you gave the order to is paid best to send it there. And then you're given a price that's probably reflective of a second-class quality of data. If we told that to somebody, I think they'd be outraged. But would they? I mean, would they really be that outraged? I just want to know how this makes you feel. Some guy has got a penny or two, maybe just a fraction of a penny, well, it's probably a penny or two, of your money because the stock exchange told him, ah, Walker's coming to buy Apple stock. You can go see if you can get it cheaper and sell it to him. You can stand in the middle of his trade. You can get between him and the person who's actually trying to sell the stock and make money, you feel okay about that? 
I don't really care. Why not? Because the original order we placed, we got we that's that was our choice. Right. To place it and and if we were willing to do that, it really shouldn't have mattered. It was true. He really didn't care. It was just a few pennies and it wasn't even really his money. He didn't even care when I told him that if you added it up across the entire market, the theft from all the little kids and grown-ups, it came to many billions of dollars a year. He didn't care that the cost was spread across millions of victims, while the benefits were concentrated in the hands of the rich few. I obviously found the situation outrageous. My son did not. It's like the lottery. You're happy when you're if you win it and just stick with that. And you don't really care about whether the lottery, lottery's fair or not if you won. And if you lose, you're just like, oh, well. Well, if you... People are really addicted to it, and they know that they're going to lose. But if they win, they're like, hell yeah, let's go home. Let's go. It crossed my mind, and not for the first time, that about the best joke life might play on me is for my son to end up a Wall Street trader. He already seems to have a useful character trait, a sense that the game is not about right and wrong, but about winning and losing, a certain, shall we say, lack of interest in the moral question. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Hi, I'm Beth. Um, I'm a senior studying social studies with a focus on Brazil, and I'm from Sacramento, and I'll be returning to Bank of America in a sales role. Hi, I'm Shira. I'm a senior at the college. I study math and computer science, and I'll be returning to Goldman uh, in a trading role. We're at Harvard, in a seminar. Mainly juniors and seniors. Anyway, they're all older than 11 years old, and supposedly interested in fairness, since that's what the class is about. 
My name is Michael Sandel, and I teach political philosophy at Harvard University. He teaches a course called Justice. It's one of the most sought-after courses at Harvard. This seminar, called Casino Capitalism, is its first cousin. Who are we missing? Vinny. Oh, Vinny. All right, we'll wait till three. Is this Vinny? Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome, Vinny. Hi, how are you doing? It's a chance for 13 hand-picked students to discuss the fairness of a lot of real-world situations, especially real-world situations on Wall Street. Many of the students have already worked on Wall Street and plan to return. Well, why don't we begin? Uh, I'm delighted that Michael Lewis and Brad Katsuyama could join us for the discussion of Flash Boys. Shall we go around? You want yeah, to- so I'm Michael Lewis. I'm the author of Flash Boys and a bunch of other books. Uh, and working on this podcast, uh, which can be called Against the Rules. I remember classes like this. The semi-preparedness, the homework half done, the thoughts half-baked. The worry that today I'm going to be found out. Although today that's not the problem. I'm the homework. So is Brad. Brad Katsiema, I'm uh, CEO, one of the co-founders of IEX. Um, obviously, I work in finance, uh, whether that's fortunately or unfortunately. Um, originally Canadian from just outside of Toronto, live in uh, Darien, Connecticut now. After Brad figured out how the stock market got rigged, he set out to fix it. He quit his $2 million a year job as the head of stock market trading at the Royal Bank of Canada. He took no pay and lots of abuse from Wall Street as he set out to create a fair stock exchange. The Investors Exchange, he called it. IEX. What's interesting is that never in my life have I been a controversial person or looking to fight against the system, I guess, in a way. That was the first time I think I was motivated to fight against the system. Did everyone come away from reading the book believing that Wall Street is rigged? Yes. Say, raise your hand if you did. (laughs) All but a few hands go up. And those of you who, who do not think it's rigged, Cade, Marius, Shira's not sure, Sai, you, you don't think it's rigged, even having read Flash Boys. Well, I'm, so here I'm a little like vacillating, um, only for the fact that maybe like I didn't understand it as well as I could have. But in my mind, it seems to be like a trade gets executed, someone catches on the trade, and just gets to make a better price because they get to dump it out real quickly. And in my mind, why is that a problem, a moral problem? I mean, when LeBron James goes to dunk a basketball and Jalen Brown stops him and then passes it to Tatum on the other side and he dunks it, no one says anything. It kind of sounds like to me this is the same thing. You got to love him, just for giving it a whirl. But most everyone else seems to disagree with him. The Dutch student, Marius, is the only one who expresses anything like outrage. Yeah, I think what I found very surprising is when you talk with traders that had been active in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when there were still like runners around and phone calls, everyone will say, yes, there was also abuse of arbitrage and there was people like taking their bit out of the market. But it was clear, it's clear for everyone that it was an illegal action and it was kind of still frowned upon but tolerated. But I feel like in this book, it sounds like the same thing is happening only on an institu- institutionalized scale. Uh, with those high-frequency traders, but yet still it's not illegal or it's not really frowned upon or not properly regulated. I feel like there's like a moral decay from back then to up here, even though the whole problem has increased in scale. It's a great point because I I think um, people are willing to do things behind a computer screen they might not be willing to do in person. and I think because you don't have that interface with the person that, let's say, you're taking advantage of, it kind of lets you tell yourself a lot of lies about what you do when, when you're not getting that direct feedback. Morally, the story Brad tells is as black and white as it gets. The students see that. They argue some about who deserves the most blame for the situation. Who's the biggest villain? The high-speed traders? The people like Ronan Ryan who once helped the high-speed traders? Or maybe it's the SEC. Brad says, none of the above. It's like sitting in a casino with a broken slot machine. You know, are you the person that puts your hand up and says it's broken or do you drain it of all its, you know, um, you know money? It's, it's uh, you know, they're capitalists. But the exchanges, I think, uh, broke the system on purpose to make money by selling people 
the ability to take advantage of that system. The fact that they're villains on Wall Street? Well, that turns out to be not all that interesting at Harvard. The students know too much to be upset. They've long since adapted to this world. They don't want to talk about corruption of the refs or the elaborate system of bribes and kickbacks or what it all says about modern life. They want to talk about the person who strikes them as the freak of the story, Brad Katsuyama. A student named Keller kind of puts his finger on it. I think it's extremely impressive that you guys were able to figure out the problem and then march right against it. You guys were able to say no to the broken slot machine. It would have been very easy to make a lot of money understanding the market this way. But, and then he says, the pronoun he, referring to you, just chose not to. And so I was wondering, uh, you know, what, like why and how? Because I know, and even with my positions about finance, I think it would have been extremely difficult for me to walk away from a broken slot machine that was paying out so heavily. Yeah. Michael and I obviously talked a lot about this. Of course we had, because he begs the question, why you? Why would any big-time Wall Street trader rebel against his industry? Why would anyone quit a multi-million dollar job to become a referee? Have you come away from this experience thinking that maybe you care more about fairness than a lot of people? I think this is a complicated subject. And we're fighting a system who, who are trying to confuse people into thinking the world works one way, and we're trying to explain it in a different way. And to figure out who's right or wrong, you have to put in the work to actually understand the details to come to the conclusion that the market is not fair. And so I don't think it's necessarily I care more about fairness than others. I think it's I've put in the work to understand what's fair or not. Brad Katsuyama is great at explaining things. The one thing he can't seem to explain is himself. Good people don't like to explain to you why they're good people. So the, it's, it, this question never will, he will, not, I can promise you, he will never answer this question to your satisfaction. Uh, uh, no, he actually won't because, because he, he's not righteous. He's not self-righteous. He's actually just a great guy. And the people who follow him, follow him because they sense that he, he's thinking more about their well-being than his own. Uh, and it's a it's a rare quality. I associate it with being a Canadian. Yeah, Canadian. Right? So, so, so the, the simple answer is he's just a Canadian. And then if he was an American, there's no chance he would have ever done any of this. If I were you, I wouldn't say a word, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Even as I said it, I realized I was wrong. Or anyway, that I'd let my mind come to rest before it should. But, it, you know, it's, what was peculiar about your situation and character was... It's, it's odd to find someone get as deep into Wall Street as you got before experiencing extreme moral revulsion. <laughs> uh, so it's the combination of the power of the feeling you had and how far into it you were when you had it. Uh, it that the kind of person who's going to be, you got a long way into it before they offended your sensibilities and then they offended it yeah. in a big way. Yeah, so that, that's actually, that's a fair point. So th this is the piece where, you know, I don't use this as a place to try to take the moral high ground because I did tolerate a lot of stuff. I saw a lot of stuff that I just did not think was good. Um, and I just, I, I just like looked at it, that's really screwed up, and I, I moved on. So what was it about this particular situation that led him to turn his back on money and risk it all to make the world fair? Brad's decision was hard for the Harvard students to understand. Ronan Ryan's would have been utterly incomprehensible. It's right. It's right in that. that it's in this building. Uh, they and they they have direct fiber optic connections to every NBA arena it, from here. Uh, That's crazy. It is crazy. And it's right. It's, it's right. See, see the NBA logo. Oh yeah. Uh, That's funny because you know the lady who wanted me to meet you was saying meet him at the NBA center. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking no, about? No, he I, had, I had no nobody idea. Knows I think they keep yeah. it there so nobody comes and shoots them. The NBA Replay Center is where this podcast began. It's also just down the road from where Ronan's career collided with Wall Street. The whole area looks as if it's waiting for someone to replace the rock on top of it that they wish they'd never removed. But a lot happens here. Let's see. I wonder, can we just pull in here? There you go. It takes us five minutes to drive from the Replay Center to the first Wall Street data center where Ronan worked for Radiance. It could be a self-storage facility. 
except for one thing. There's a tower on top, festooned with satellite dishes. Look where we're sitting right now, Michael. We're in a crappy parking lot across the street from one of the most important capital market building on the globe. On the globe. You just wouldn't picture the no, epitome you, you of capital markets being here. It's, yeah. it's a very curious situation. Yeah. It, yeah. And if CNBC was being honest, they just have a camera on that building yeah. the whole time yeah. while they're talking about what's going on in the stock market. Yeah, because yeah, that's where it is. Yeah. $8 trillion of stocks traded inside this place in the last year, and it would occur to no one to visit it, to watch. You know, you look up, you just take for granted the massive number of wires and power cables and all the rest, and you don't ever ask what the hell they are. All of those towers up there are microwave towers. You have to pay them from a cable from your computers up onto the roof, and they sell you roof rights. And roof rights basically means they'll bolt on your satellite dish, your your microwave dish. To that structure right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ronan taught Brad about all this new technology inside the stock market. And he did it so well that Brad created a stock exchange that might put the entire racket out of business. Brad taught Ronan how to trade stocks. So well that when Brad ditched his job, the Royal Bank of Canada wanted Ronan to replace him. Which is to say that Ronan Ryan finally, after 15 years, got the job offer he had dreamed of. That of big shot Wall Street trader, making millions of dollars a year. But when Brad left to start IEX, Ronan left with him to build the fair exchange, to create the honest ref. And they didn't do it in the American way, by getting outraged or appealing to a higher authority or electing a crazy person. They just did an end run around the whole problem of high-frequency trading. Inside this same bland New Jersey warehouse, IEX coiled miles of fiber optic cable and stuck it in a box. Then they announced that anyone who traded on IEX would have to send their orders through this box. The magic shoebox, Ronan called it. It slowed down the high-speed traders just enough. Explain in the simplest way that you could, so your mom could explain what the speed bump does. It's literally coiled cable, 38 miles of cable, which takes uh, the light signal 350 millionths of a second to go around it. So we're not talking about slowing things down dramatically. But what that allows us to do as an exchange is it gives us, the exchange, this clearest picture on what's going on in the market. Whereas other exchanges, because they're slower than the people trading on their market, they're printing trades without a clear picture of what's going on. So rather than try to race the high-frequency... The magic shoebox is a machine for slowing things down in a speeded-up world. An engine of fairness. There have been a bunch of studies about its effects. It saves investors somewhere between 1 and 12 basis points. A basis point is one-hundredth of a percent. Which sounds like a tiny amount, right? But across the American stock market... Each basis point comes to $7 billion a year. So if the entire stock market traded on IEX, investors would be spared being ripped off somewhere between $7 and $84 billion a year. This shit adds up in Jersey. The skimming of the American investor isn't a street mugging. It's fantastically complicated and at bottom a little boring. There was no reason Ronan had to leave his dream job to step in between Wall Street and its investors and say, stop, you're not doing this anymore. I think had I not worked at RBC for a couple of years, I might have thought this was a great business opportunity. But the level of full of shitness on the people that we were meeting was just making me more and more angry. So it was more like a challenge to make this fair because what was most annoying is people saying, it's already fair, nothing to see here. Ronan could have walked away from his middle-class Irish self and acquired whatever he wanted, including heirs. Instead, he flew to Ireland. His parents still had no real idea what their son did for a living. But he wanted to talk to them about it, because somehow they were still important to him. Their voices were still in his head. That's why I'd gone to visit Ronan's mom and dad, just outside of Dublin, in the village of Dalkey, to hear their voices. What did you think when he told you he was making a million dollars a year? (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) You had no idea? No. It's hard to believe. 
you know, I couldn't kind of think. You know, they say in every business deal, there are two people, there's a fucker and a fucky. And I knew Ronan could be the fucker, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so that's the, yeah. yeah. I had a feeling, I had a feeling about him. And then in the same breath that Ronan revealed his new Wall Street power and wealth, he confessed that he was thinking of walking away from it all, plus tossing a match over his shoulder to burn the place down, in a way that would make it virtually impossible to go back as a regular trader on Wall Street. And for Ronan's dad, here was the kicker. His son was leaving the playing field to become a referee. And It all struck me that if you see referees... They're always kind of skinny legs and they're always popping around the place. And I always think of, you know, those who can do, those who can't teach, you know, those who can kick the ball, play football, those who can't referee. And it just sort of thought it was strange, you know. That anybody would even want to be one. How, why would you want to be one? Why would you want to be a trap? Why would you want to be a policeman going out making people miserable every day? <laughs> IEX did not so much open for business as explode. After its opening, Wall Street's biggest banks were fined hundreds of millions of dollars for cheating ordinary investors. IEX itself was the target of an expensive and mendacious political media campaign bought and paid for by the exchanges and high-frequency traders. Brad and Ronan were threatened and slandered. They needed bodyguards. It took them two years to get the SEC's approval to open for business, more than four times as long as it took an exchange built by high-frequency traders. All because they were doing the most seditious thing that you could do at the heart of American capitalism. Introduce fairness. Correct. Yeah. Like, uh, fathers never really know what their sons are at. Like, my father never knew what job I had. He thought I worked for St. Vincent de Paul Charitable Organization. Give their money to companies, you know. <laughs> he didn't understand inward investment, right? I didn't fully understand where Ronan was at. Ronan Ryan. I don't think he particularly even wanted to be a referee. It just so happened that the place he landed, Wall Street, couldn't accommodate both his ambition and his character. His mama and daddy raised him a certain way, and he couldn't quite forget it. They raised him to see other people as just people who are either full of shit or not. It turned out that Wall Street had a crying need for someone who was not full of shit. And Ronan Ryan had a serious talent for it. Can I have your tea now? <laughs> yes, that would be great. You got your milk, you did, yeah, sure. I did. Yeah. I got everything else. Why do people become referees? Actual refs, I mean, not the ones who get into it because some powerful player has bribed them to play the role. I don't think there's a single simple reason. The refs in the NBA, they're there mainly because they love the game and it's their way into it. Ken Feinberg, he discovered in himself a gift for a kind of ferocious neutrality, found ways to exercise that gift and discovered that our society just now desperately needs it. Let's pause a moment to thank our refs, the honest ones. We can tell ourselves that they're doing what they're doing for the same self-serving reasons the rest of us do what we do. But there really are people who step up in certain moments, in certain situations, to insist on fairness, even if their fathers never fully understand what they do, and even though the world never fully appreciates it. All right. Consider it a birthday present. Ten shares of Apple. All right. All right. Give me a hug. And if Apple screws up, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. Thanks for being thanks for being my guinea pig. You're a good podcast child. Do you think in the olden days, this is very off topic, but it's about money. When money was like a dollar, you could buy a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you think in the olden days people called people with over a hundred dollars hundred hundred nairs? Uh a hundred air as opposed to a millionaire? Yeah. And then a thousand air? They must have had a word before millionaire, right? Yeah. It was called rich. <laughs> They're rich. They're just a rich.
I'm Michael Lewis. Thanks for listening to Against the Rules. Against the Rules is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. The show is produced by Audrey Dilling and Catherine Girardot, with research assistance from Zoe Oliver-Gray and Beth Johnson. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Our theme was composed by Nick Bertel, with additional scoring by Seth Samuel. Mastering by Jason Gambrell. Our show was recorded at Northgate Studios in Berkeley by Topher Ruth. Special thanks to our founders, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. That's not yours. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.